Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. Well, welcome to College Life. I am so glad you guys are here. It's been a couple weeks, but we are back. We're opening God's Word. We're studying it together. And so I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time here, I want to give you a special welcome. Here at College Life, we are Wildwood's college ministry. And at Wildwood, we are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. And one of the ways we do that on Sunday mornings in College Life is by following Jesus into His Word and following Jesus into community. So we'll always have Bible teaching into His Word and we'll always have table discussion in college life. So that's kind of how it'll work this morning. So if you would, if you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 2. We are getting in the nitty-gritty of the Old Testament. All right. My name is Kevin Choate, and I am the college pastor. And we are continuing our series on false gods today, which is a modern look at idolatry. Now, over the past few years, there has been a phenomenon that I like to call the self-care phenomenon. You guys know what I'm talking about? Well, if this means eating healthy, exercising regularly, communing with God spiritually, and regular self-discipline, I am all for it. But if you're on social media whatsoever, you know that it has become more about a culture of elevating oneself over the community or the needs of others. And since this phenomenon has exploded, I've observed personally an uptick in praising lavish lifestyle, promoting the easy life, and devoting days to pleasure, all with the self-imposed title of self-care. Now, this pleasure-seeking lifestyle isn't only limited to things titled self-care, right? Whether it is using or viewing people as objects of pleasure, or viewing experiences as a way to numb the difficulties of life, or even accumulating and gathering stuff to make ourselves feel good, we have all truly noticed something that is true. Those things can't comfort us. Those things can't give us what we need inside, and that's because they were never intended to. Because God was intended to fill that role as our great comforter. Today we're continuing this series, False Gods Today, where we are looking at a variety of root idols underneath the surface of regular surface level idols. And so far we've looked at the root idol of approval and power. And we've defined this as approval being a longing to be accepted or desired and power as a longing for influence or recognition. Eric Geiger, he's the person who inspired this series, proposed proper responses to these particular idols. And he said that we can repent for a longing of approval by rejoicing in God's gracious approval. Secondly, for power, we can repent of our longing for power by submitting to his greater power within us. And today we are looking at the deeply rooted idol of comfort. And comfort, the way in which we are defining it, is the longing for pleasure. A longing for pleasure. 
After reading God's word today, I hope that we can repent of our longing for comfort by remembering that God is our greatest comfort. We'll look at the root idol of comfort by looking at these three things. Number one, the ease of seeking worldly comfort. Number two, the example of Christ in discomfort and the edifying blessing of seeking God's comfort. So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 2. Just a little bit of background on this uh, section of Scripture. You know, when I thought of what would it look like to look at the deep root idol of comfort, who would be a good example of how that failed? Well, we're going to look at the richest man in the Bible, King Solomon. If ever there was a man who had all the worldly pleasures, it was him. In 1 Kings, we read that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. In, in 2 Chronicles, he tells us that during his reign as king in Jerusalem, silver was as common as stone. We also read in the Bible that he established influential trade and navy routes, as well as creating important alliance, alliances in the region. He had a wealth of experiences and accomplishments as well. And we're going to see through his self-reflection the ease of seeking worldly comfort. Now, during this series, we've discussed that idolatry isn't always the picture that we may see in the Bible, prostrating or bowing down before a golden calf. But instead, it takes its, its place a little bit differently. See, we can build idols in our hearts, or what we have called throughout this series, soul worship. Really, idolatry is what our heart, our soul, and our mind centers around more than God. It is making anything good or bad into an ultimate thing. This is what we call disordered worship. God has created all of us to worship, and we will worship something. And God has designed us to worship Him, but whenever we place these things on the throne of our hearts, we can worship created things rather than the Creator. Now, the root idol of comfort is disordered worship because God has created us in us a sense to seek out comfort. In our times of distress, our times of trouble, whenever we're sad, stressed, whenever something hard happens, our heart seeks comfort. But disordered worship or seeking comfort in a worldly sense is by seeking that comfort in pleasure rather than in God. That's the difference. So let's see how that works out with Solomon. Let's read in verses 1 through 3. He says in verse 1, I thought to myself, come now, I will try self-indulgent pleasure to see if it is worthwhile. But I found that it is also futile. I said of partying, it is folly. And of self-indulgent pleasure, it accomplishes nothing. I thought deeply about the effects of indulging myself with wine. All the while, my mind was guiding me with wisdom and the effects of behaving foolishly so that I might discover what is profitable for people do on earth to do on earth during the days, the few days of their lives. So the verse begins by being essentially a summary of this entire passage. He's reflecting on this journey of self-indulgence, and the question he is seeking to answer is revealed in verse 1. What does it say? To see if self-indulgent pleasure is indeed worthwhile. So Solomon goes on a journey to discover if these things will satisfy him in life. And it's a really relatable journey, isn't it? Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. 
Here is another message on how the things of this world don't satisfy and God does. Kevin's going to say the same thing that he always says. And if you are thinking that thought, then this very message is the one that God wants you to hear today. Because I'm not just talking about stuff. I'm not just talking about spiritual things. I'm talking about your heart and my heart and how we are diseased inside. That we crave things that are not good for us. We go and naturally bend towards things that will hurt us and give us pain and will not satisfy us. We are deeply flawed. And ultimately, all of us are selfish. I want to show you just how selfish we are. Like Solomon says here, we must not only read that seeking pleasure is futile, like he says, or is folly, or it accomplishes nothing. We must be convinced by it. We must be gripped by that truth so that we no longer worship created things, but worship the God who can satisfy us. See, Solomon in the succeeding verses, what he's going to show us is that stuff, people, and experiences cannot satisfy us. The first is stuff. He says in verses 4 through 6, I increased my possessions. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I designed royal gardens and parks for myself. And I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I constructed pools of water for myself to irrigate my grove of flourishing trees. Solomon, on his journey to see if pleasure satisfies, what does he do? He accumulates stuff. Now, if we didn't have the historical context, we would think that uh, Solomon was an American, right? He is on a stuff collection journey. He had houses. He had vineyards. He had gardens, parks, trees, and pools. He had the American dream before the American dream. He had it all. The trap we fall into with stuff is this. If we accumulate enough of it, then we'll be happy. If I only had this, I'd be happy. If you are ever burdened by the weight of how difficult life is, and your first reaction is to go shopping, then you might be believing this lie. See, a person whose deep-rooted idol is power, like we've talked about, and you have a chart on your table to kind of compare these, whose deep-rooted idol of power will accumulate stuff to make themselves influential, to make a name for himself. The person with an approval idol will accumulate stuff to make others like him. But the person with the comfort idol will accumulate stuff to make themselves feel good. When the package arrives on the doorstep, it's the highlight of their day. They check that shipment number. They count down the stops until it gets to their house, and then they count down the stops until they can finally hug their beautiful new package on their doorstep. It's a broom. It's beautiful. It's what I ordered on Amazon. It was a Black Friday deal right? We think that this stuff will satisfy us. Maybe it's a video game. Maybe it's a piece of furniture. Maybe it's a piece of clothing. That will make me happy. And then what happens after a little while? It goes in the closet. It collects dust. It's just another thing. We don't only crave stuff, though, to comfort us. Sometimes we use people. Solomon continues. We're going to get into some serious stuff here, okay? Verse 7. I purchased male and female slaves, and I owned slaves who were born in my house. I also possessed more livestock, both herds and flocks, 
than any of my predecessors in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself, as well as valuable treasures taken from kingdoms and provinces. I acquired male singers and female singers for myself, and what gives a man sensual delight, a harem of beautiful concubines. Now, when we read the Old Testament, it's important to know that when we read this, it is not saying this is the way to live. This is exactly the right way, but it uses these characters to show us what happened. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. And so when we read of Solomon's life, he is giving us wisdom of the folly that he experienced in doing these things that he is recognizing is wrong. And so verses 7 through 8, it show us how Solomon on his self-indulgence journey purchased literal human beings. This passage is all about him seeking pleasure. And whenever pleasure becomes an ultimate thing, you will stop at nothing to get what you want. What you want is the most important thing. So why did he purchase these people? It says, because he believed they could give him pleasure that lasted. That's what verse 1 says. And this isn't uncommon today. Even though slavery is illegal, one of the most common ways in which we treat people as objects of pleasure is through sex. The surface idol of sex is one that deeply deals with this root idol of comfort or chasing pleasure. It is the selfish view. So whether it is a rampant porn addiction, sexual acts with other people other than your spouse, which I think most everyone in this room is unmarried, right? Or even lusting after men and women on Instagram or on the South Oval. All of these actions view people not as valuable humans with an immortal soul and an immortal destination who have inherent value because they are created in God's image. That is for my pleasure. And that is not how God designed us to live in relationship with one another. But whenever we, when, whenever we idolize comfort to the point that humans are reduced to objects of pleasure, this is what we have done. The question we must consider is this. If you struggle with this deeply rooted idol of comfort, is the deeply rooted idol of comfort affecting others or just me? Well, even though Solomon isn't buying slaves and concubines, the men and women in this room who watch porn are contributing to modern-day slavery. They're contributing to the enslavement of children in the sex injury. These are some stats for you. Globally, 27.6 million people are victims of human trafficking at any given time. This makes it the second largest criminal industry in the world. In the U.S., the average age of exploitation is 12 to 15 years old. Every two minutes, a child is trafficked for sexual exploitation. And what is the driving force behind this industry? It is pornography. Pornography fuels the demand for sex trafficking and paves the way for prostitution. Those clicks, they are not harmless. It is not just affecting you. It is harming innocent people. See, for the person with a power problem, sex is all about domination, conquering. For the approval person, it's about, it's about earning love and affection. But the person with the deeply rooted idol of comfort, it is pleasure. It is inherent selfishness. Lastly, we can use experiences as objects of comfort, right? This is verses 9 through 11. So I was far wealthier than all my predecessors in Jerusalem. Yet I maintained my objectivity. I did not restrain myself from getting whatever I wanted. 
I did not deny myself anything that would bring me pleasure. So all my accomplishments, they gave me joy. This was my reward for all my effort. Yet, when I reflected on everything I had accomplished and on all the effort that I had expended to accomplish it, I concluded all these achievements and possessions are ultimately profitless, like chasing the wind. There is nothing gained from them on the earth. Experiences and accomplishments are another high, a temporary joy. And Solace gives us the application we need when we are idolizing comfort or seeking pleasure. It's this. Do not chase shadows. Don't chase shadows. Remember, this is disordered worship. We are focusing on the wrong thing. It's been said that for the alcoholic, alcohol isn't the problem. It's the solution. Porn isn't the problem. It's your solution. Shopping isn't the problem. It's your solution. For many of us, we have self-medicated with the lie that stuff, people, or experiences will give us the com comfort we need to conquer the difficult things in our life. Instead of actually dealing with them and going to the one who can actually deal with the issues of our heart, we instead medicate by using stuff, people, or experiences to make ourselves feel better. So the question that I want to ask you today, what is it that you need to surrender to the God of comfort that is leading you to seek comfort from things that will not satisfy? Don't chase shadows. Chase the real thing, the God of comfort. Solomon makes it clear he has done it all and all these achievements and possessions are ultimately so let's talk about this at our tables, okay? This, these few ideas. I want us to talk about what are some common things today that people chase to give them comfort. And then number two, read the passage again together as a table. And I just want you to ask yourself as a table, have you ever believed that if you had all the things that Solomon had, that it would make you happy? Have you ever believed that? And do you believe that Solomon is sincere in his conclusion? We're done with Ecclesiastes for the day, so if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew 26, that's where we're going to be next. We're going to be in verse 36. And as you turn, we've looked at Solomon's chase for self-indulgent self pleasure, and I think it's safe to say that it's obvious. It's obvious how easy it is to seek pleasure in the world, but really the chase for pleasure is because we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be uncomfortable. That actually terrifies us. It terrifies us so much in our culture that oftentimes when we have to have a hard conversation or bring something difficult up, what do we preface it with? Hey, I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but, you know, it's almost like it's a sin to make someone else uncomfortable, right? We are terrified of this, and it's because we don't really handle discomfort well. I wish... Man, I wish in the Bible there was someone who handled discomfort well. I wish there was someone who, you know, like, man, like he knew he was going to die. Like he knew his best friend was going to betray him. I wish there was someone who could relate to that. Thankfully, there is. It's, his name's Jesus. If you've heard of him, he's awesome. He's the center of Scripture. He is truly God and truly man. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, 
we see his humanity on full display. We say that Jesus is truly God and truly man. <clears throat> and here we see the example of Christ in discomfort. So, up to this point, Jesus had predicted Peter's denial. He was about to be arrested, which would begin his state-sponsored execution. So, Jesus, being truly God, also knows this is coming. Therefore, in his humanity, what does he experience? He experiences pain. He experiences sorrow. He experiences grief. So let's read about that in Matthew 26, verse 36 through 39. It begins by saying, Then Jesus went with them, the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus was fully aware of his coming death. He willingly, knowingly, and intentionally was going to the cross, but that didn't mean he avoided the breadth of sorrow that would come if you knew something like that. He couldn't avoid the sorrow that came with that knowledge. He felt sorrow in such a way, not figuratively, but fig, uh, in a way that he felt like this sorrow could actually kill him. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And what does Jesus do? In the midst of his sorrow, it says in verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. So what does Jesus do? In the midst of his greatest discomfort yet, he prays. He prays. Jesus is the incarnate, in the flesh, second person of the Trinity. He is of the same essence, yet distinct in person. And here, he communes with his Father because he loves the Father just as the Father loves him. And what is amazing is this love is unconditional. And we know that it is perfect because Scripture says that God is love. And Jesus' greatest discomfort, he seeks communion with the Father. And he says this, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now let's pause here and just take a moment. What would be a normal response to suffering in our day? It would be to numb it, right? To distract ourselves from it or to counteract the pain with an influx of pleasure. But what instead did Jesus do? He submitted to suffering and death since this was the only way to provide salvation to humanity. Yes, there was love between the Father and the Son, but there was also love for the world. Philippians 2 describes it like this, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the question comes, if God let this happen to his son, did he even love his son? Well, Paul answers that question in the very next verse. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You ever heard of the name Jesus? It's the name that's above every name. It's exalted. It is to be praised. It is the name at which every knee will bow down. He is to be praised. He is to be glorified. The Father blesses Jesus in this way through his obedience. And clearly God loves the Son. He has given him all these things. But he also loves us. We go through suffering, right? We go through horrible things. Lost loved ones, sickness, failures, breakups, letting others down, the weight of expectations on our shoulders. How can we know that God loves us? Well, let me read some scripture to bless your souls, okay? Read it with me. It's going to be on the screen. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction of our sins. For this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day, John 6, 40. And now Titus 3, 3 through 8, which I would love if you would turn your Bibles to Titus 3, 3 through 8. It's right before Philemon, before Hebrews. Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. I want you guys to marinate on this. Think about this. This is the gospel. This is the good news that in our sin, this is what God has done through Jesus Christ. Titus 3, 3-8. By the way, I love hearing the turning of the pages. So if you don't have a physical Bible, bring it. It's a beautiful thing. Studies show that when you read physical copies, it actually imprints on your brain better than digital. How about that? So we should do it, right? Okay, Titus 3, 3-8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration or giving of a new heart, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to, to vote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. All these verses... We cannot second-guess the fact that God loves you. God loves you. You are worthy of His love so much that He sent His own Son to die for you in your place. He loves you in your stress, in your hurt, in your pain, in your boredom, in your uncertainty of life. Where is this going? You don't have to question. He loves you. This is undeniable. He sent His Son to die a death that we deserve. But the question is now this, friends. God loves us. 
Do you love God? Do you love God? Now, we're all in church this morning. We're all going to naturally say, yes, of course. But I want to highlight what it says at the end of Titus 3. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So take a moment. Take stock of your life. Look at this past week. What was your reaction to stress? What was your reaction to boredom? What was your reaction to pain or suffering or a hard situation? Did you seek pleasure to numb it? Did you objectify people for your personal pleasure? Our actions tell us whether or not we love God, not our sincerity or what we believe to be sincere. If you are in unrepentant sin, if you are living in habits of sin with no remorse, no conviction of sin, I cannot tell you and give you confidence that your eternity is secure. I can tell you. However, today, there is plenty of grace available to forgive you today. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And anyone who believes on Him is made alive. They're no longer dead in their trespasses, but they are given a new heart. Just as the prophet Ezekiel talked about the power of God to make dry bones come alive, He can do that too in your life. Those dry bones that you have. You don't have to walk around acting like you've got it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For what? It is the power of God to bring salvation. It can raise these dry bones to life. Jesus is waiting for you to come to him to receive the free offer of forgiveness. But it demands a response. It is not fire insurance that we can just write a claim for and receive. But it demands our repentance. It demands that we turn away from our, our old way of life, that we make Jesus the Lord of our life, that what he says go, that he is the king of our heart. The Christian life requires surrender. It is not, I'll follow what I want to and when it's convenient. It is, I will follow you no matter the cost. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to you because each one of you has a story. Each one of you has a struggle. Each one of you has been died for. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a payment for your sins, not so that you can keep living in your sin, but so that you can seek the true God of comfort, so that you can be comforted by the Holy Spirit who is called the Comfort in the book of John. We are not meant to continue in our sin. If we've trusted in Christ, we are to repent. So if there's something holding you back, it's because you haven't surrendered it to the Lord. Give your whole life to Him because it is worth it. It is freedom. It allows you to live the life that we are unable to when we are in the chains of sin. And so the reason, the reason why we can be comforted by the God of comfort is not because we try hard. It's not because we go to church. It's not because we read our Bible. But it's because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be comforted because we know that God loves us, because He is with us always. We say that Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Well, even though Christ has ascended into heaven, He has given us a present helper in our time of need. 
We are not alone. If you have trusted in Christ, I ask you to repent from your sin. Do not live in those chains. Because there's edification of godly comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 tells us of the comfort provided by the saving God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we comfort with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Guys, check this out. God provides the comfort, we provide the burden. We don't really have much to bring to the table. And to be honest, that's a pretty unreasonable trade. But it is the one that Jesus Christ made possible through his saving work on the cross. With that beautiful prayer, thy will be done. That prayer is the same prayer that the saved man makes or woman in obedience to his Lord and Savior, Jesus, King Jesus, thy will be done, not mine own. So would you bow your heads with me in prayer? And I want you to consider your own life. You may have said a prayer once. Keep your eyes closed and just think and reflect. You may have said a prayer once. You may have done the good things, but maybe you've never surrendered or given your entire life to Christ. I would be remiss if I didn't share this news today and give you an option to respond. If you're ready to fully surrender your life to Christ and fully receive the grace in which he offers, you can do that right now. You can confess to God in silence, in prayer, communicating with Him that you're a sinner. That your sinner has earned separation from God. You can ask God to forgive you. And if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive them. After you ask the Lord to forgive you, make Him the Lord of your life. Say, Jesus is Lord that you're giving all of your sin, all of your unrighteousness to Him.